Welcome to In Our Hands, a podcast about the challenges and opportunities presented by the climate crisis. Each week, we interview a new thinker at the front lines of the battle to save our planet. Hello, everyone. I'm speaking with Dr. Juliet Shore. She is a professor of sociology at Boston College and a leading expert, which is kind of an understatement here, in consumption, labor economics, and sustainable behavior patterns, all things of very high interest to Asia and to me. Before joining Boston College, she taught at Harvard for 17 years. She is a former Guggenheim and Brookings Institution Fellow. She's a co-founder and former board member of the Center for New American Dream, which is a national sustainability organization and is the vice chair of the board of the Better Future Project, which is one of the country's most successful climate activism organizations. She has also served as a trustee of Wesleyan, her undergraduate alma mater, and has lectured widely throughout the United States, Europe, and Japan to a variety of civic, business, labor, and academic groups. She appears frequently on national and international media and has served as a consultant of the UN at the World Institute for Development Economics Research and to the UNDP. So, Juliet, thank you very much for consenting to chat with me in our ongoing series. And I'll begin with question one. One of my goals in these short interviews is to humanize science and research. Can you walk us through your life and your career, which is so illustrious, but has curved in so many interesting ways? What led you to make the choices that you have? Yeah, there's a way in which I feel like I actually never made choices. I just sort of flowed along a river. But I was, you know, always pretty oriented to school and academics. In college, I studied economics and philosophy because those seemed to me to be the subjects that were most relevant for making change in the world. And that's what I was interested in. From a very young age, I had been involved in various kinds of political activities. I did a lot of work for the United Farm Workers Union and anti-war activities uh, during the Vietnam War and so forth. And so I was really, I thought of myself as a, you know, what we now would call a change agent. Uh, to understand the world, I thought philosophy and economics. And I was sort of drawn more to economics and went on to graduate school. At that time, I mean, this is sort of unusual, I think. At that time, I had finished college very young and I sort of felt like I just need to learn and I'm going to graduate school just to learn, not because I want to be a professor. But then I got very socialized into the academic life. So I came out on the other side as a professor. I think it was more just looking up to the people I studied with. They were some brilliant people who were also very politically engaged. And I've always had a life in which I do scholarly work, but also I do a lot of activism. And that's been from the very beginning, whether it's through writings, through organizations that I've, uh, you mentioned a few that I've co-founded, or that I'm, you know, working pretty intensively with. So it was just a lifelong orientation to using knowledge and using scholarly activity to inform what I'm doing in the world. I have a quick follow-on question to that before we start digging into your research. And we'll come back, I think, to some of the activism in a bit. Uh, you know, I'll never forget reading a biography of the Indian-American physicist as Chandrasekhar, where he basically said, every 10 years, I write a masterpiece on what I've been doing for 10 years, and then I forget completely about it 
and move on to the next research topic that is of interest to me. And you've written numerous books on related but different things as you've gone along. Is your approach a little similar? You know, I have now mastered this subject and now I move on. Yes, and I'm not sure it's the best approach for contemporary academia, but I do. I sort of, so I wrote The Overworked American. That was the first, you know, solo book that I wrote. Before that, I was doing articles, you know, typical of a a very early stage career PhD. My PhD is in economics. And that book, you know, just turned out to be a bestseller. I hit the moment really well with it. I lucked out. And so I was giving a lot of talks and one, and I had a chapter in there called The Cycle of Work and Spend. Somebody in the audience said to me, how do I get out of the cycle of work and spend? And the whole book was about the work side, really. I mean, I had a little on the spending and I was like, oh, that's a really interesting question. So then the next project was understanding social pressures to spend. The book was The Overspent American. That one led to the next. So it is true that I have been very unlike some people I know. There are people who I sort of are my vintage PhDs who are still working on the topic that they did their PhD on. And that's kind of not me. I think I would just be, have a hard time sustaining interest in it. And partly it has to do with kind of, I tend to take a fairly broad approach to issues Other people are kind of really digging down deep onto a a narrower set of things. And both are really important. Both perspectives are important. I happen to have the one that I think you maybe exhaust what you usefully have to say on a topic quicker. It's interesting. I, I feel it's almost easier to do that in science where you've got this defined problem that you're solving or theorizing for. Whereas in the social sciences and the humanities, the boundaries are a little more fuzzy to, I have found a definitive solution. Okay, we will now start digging into some of your work. So the green growth theory aims to advance economic opportunity by expanding productivity, but also addressing environmental pressures and reducing greenhouse emissions. You've been a critic of this approach, especially in relation to public policy. Some thoughts, and I I want to just warn the audience that I happen to agree violently with you on this topic, and I'm a little unusual in my business circles to have that opinion. So the question for you is, why should we abandon the GDP growth at all cost mentality when considering the best way to reduce emissions? So the... First reason we need to abandon GDP at all cost is really this is that there's a simple answer to that, which is that the science tells us we've got to get emissions reductions in a certain range by a certain time. Not much ambiguity about that. At this point, the sort of rigorousness of those emissions reductions is extreme. I mean, they're really rapid and very hard to achieve. And, you know, we've spent some decades already trying to achieve emissions reductions and have not been successful. So the first thing is we ask the question, by how much do we need to reduce emissions? And then we can say, okay, what's the plan for doing that? And what's the scope for expanding GDP? And the answer for 
wealthy countries is we've pretty much lost that scope. And actually at a very heartbreaking and like really sobering point is that if we look at the total carbon budget for the entire globe, some estimates say we don't have any left, which means we've got to think about how can we raise standards of living for poor people in global South countries without using GDP expansion, which is the typical way that we have lifted people out of poverty. So that's the quick answer to it. Now, let me go into that. Why yeah, we, we want the long answer. Yeah. So why do I say that, that we can't expand? GDP, it all has to do with, you know, a debate that we call decoupling, and that's the decoupling of emissions from output. Right now, we have pretty close relationship. Output goes up, emissions go up. And there are two kinds of decoupling. One is what we call relative decoupling. So for every dollar of GDP, how much energy do we use and what are the emissions associated with that energy? And then absolute decoupling is basically... So And so relative decoupling is when you can, you're reducing the amount of emissions for every dollar of GDP. Absolute decoupling is when you can actually increase your GDP and your emissions can go down. They just become unrelated. I mean, that's what you have to have to be able to have green growth. You've got to be able to expand all the while that you're reducing your emissions. We've almost never seen it. You know, you have a couple of years, you might see it because you have some lucky things like you're switching from coal to something else and you're not measuring your methane with your natural gas or there are a few a few examples of this or the other really big thing that's happened where you see people think ah yes we can grow without emissions is that you're offshoring your emissions to other countries so Europe and the United States have done a lot of that especially to China so so far we've still got Fairly, the relationship between emissions and GDP is still close enough that we can't get there. In theory, we could have green growth if, you know, eventually we could get to that. So it's not a theoretical impossibility. It's just a practical impossibility at the moment. I mean, if we decarbonized all of our emissions, you know, decarbonized all of our energy systems and we changed our land use patterns and so forth, our diets, you know, we might be able to get back to a situation where we could grow and also be reducing emissions, but we're very far from that. A Dutch economist who I think has a a good uh, point of view on this, and it's one I've advocated for in some of my writings, and he, it's an agnostic point of view about growth. And it says, we have an emissions target. In advance, we don't set a target around growth. We don't say we need to grow or we need to shrink. We just figure out how we can meet our emissions target and what rate of GDP change that is compatible with. There may be a couple depending on what you, you know, how you choose to reduce, but that's really what we need to do. We need to follow the science and the green growth rhetoric doesn't follow the science. It's fuzzy on the science. It just says, Oh, we can grow and do all these great things, but you just, you don't see you're not going to find the hard numbers that show you can grow and continue to and get your emission reductions. And that's why, for example, even, you know, the IPCC, who's doing increasingly great work, finally had to admit, well, we need to talk about demand. 
And because they've got all these fairy tale negative emission scenarios coming in the second half of the century that are going to bail us out from all the growth that we did in the first part. But the last point on this, I think that's really important is growth isn't what it used to be. No. In the past, growth was poverty alleviating and it also was inequality alleviating, particularly in the first period, you know, that, you know, what we've sometimes called the golden age of capitalism. It wasn't golden for everybody, but a much better functioning economy. But, you know, when you start to look after 1980, and that's now, you know, 40 years, growth is associated with extreme inequality. It's associated with immiseration for people. You know, it's not, we got to get rid of this growth centricity. It's not yielding well-being in the way that it once did. And the green growth scenario also is pretending we're still in a world that's been gone for almost 50 years. I mean, I have 15 follow-up questions, but we're going to be talking for five hours. So let me move, and you know, all your research is super interesting. So I'm going to move to our next question. So much of your research has to do with what I would think of as climate-related, but it also falls, and this is what makes the work so interesting, at the intersection of human behavior, inequality, and labor policy. So this builds on what you just said, specifically the, the offshoring comment, which really strikes home. But in general, whether West or East, Emissions are not equal. Emissions contributions are not made equal. You know, 10% of the world's wealthiest households, most of which are in the affluent West, are responsible for 45% of global emissions. So this strikes to the heart of the Amasia investment thesis, which I try and keep out of these interviews, but I'm going to allow it to waft in. We're all about catalyzing behavior change. What do you think is the most effective way to catalyze behavior change in that top 10%? that haven't necessarily thought about the world this way before. As I think about the question of how do you catalyze behavior change in the top 10%, I think there's a big difference between the people at the very top and the people lower down in that distribution. So I'm in that distribution. I'm a person that, the kind of a person that, that where persuasive campaigning, where role modeling, where nudging, where, you know, some tax policy, all of those things, and also market innovation that can bring new kinds of things. So the fact that I can buy a really good electric car made me switch from a, an internal combustion engine to an electric car. And, and my doing that is, is leading to people all around me doing that in part as they see me. So those de- what we call demonstration effects are, are really important. I'm just waiting for the rest of the people on my street to put their solar panels up. But when we talk about, so within that 10%, the, uh, you've got a really unequal distribution in terms of carbon footprints. I just read a, a very interesting paper by an old colleague friend of looking at the world's wealthiest billionaires and their carbon footprints. And the guy at the very top is a Russian billionaire who footprint, I mean, it's it's many times that of Gates and Elon Musk and Musk is reducing his and hopefully some of the people who like Musk will, will follow him. But there's no behavior change strategy that's going to appeal no. to 
him right. to Mr. Roman. Yep. Hogger Lev. So then I got his name. I, I still pronounced his name wrong. But anyway, I'm sure you know what it is. So there, I think we have. So why is his footprint so big? Number one, it's his yacht. It's just absolutely enormous. Many enormous yachts. Yeah. Those are major contributor to the carbon footprints of the people at the very top. I mean, he has a footprint thousands of times that of the people below, regular people, even the people like me in the top 10%. So for there, it's it's not going to be a behavior change strategy. We've got to get those yacht makers to stop making such giant yachts. So we're just going to need some laws about sort of a set of things which are just not feasible. And we're going to need the economic incentives also, which make it so expensive. But part of the issue is that the people in the top of that distribution have so much money that they don't respond to economic incentives. And they're not going to respond to shaming either. So I think we're just going to have some laws, have to have some laws that are going to make some things not viable. And that's their... We're going to have to focus on the places that have a lot of those really super polluters, as they're called. And, you know, we're not going to get it in every country, but, you know, there will still be some individuals. But I do think that there's a behavior change is only going to take you so far with that top 10%. And a big part of the reason why is they're engaged in what I called in, in my book, The Overspent American Competitive Consumption. They're engaged in a really intense struggle of competitive consumption, which is connected also to their earnings, competitive, you know, earnings, but they're showing off the wealth in very, very ostentatious ways. I have a colleague who studied the VIP circuit and just the ways in which people actually just visibly destroy wealth, you know, buying the hundreds of thousands of dollars of a champagne bottle and just spill it out just so everyone can see they, they literally have so much money, they can just burn it up. And the only way to get that under control is to start doing something about extreme inequality. Because I just I don't think there's another way. It's it's the fact that those folks are just sucking up so much of the value that's being created in, in the world today and, and so much more than than their share, fair share. I will tell you, I'm more hopeful about all of that than I was two years ago, which is which is the good news. But you have to be immersed in looking at the world this way and looking out for these things, as you are and to a much lesser extent I am, to to have that hope. But we'll see. So I want to switch now to other elements of your recent research, and this concerns the sharing economy, which is now all around us. And it's celebrated in Silicon Valley, which is where I live, because it's easy for people like me and the entrepreneurs we back to celebrate it. But as we know, and as you've researched, the gig economy poses huge challenges to workers, to businesses, to public policy institutions. And despite glorious promises of ecological reconstruction, worker empowerment, the peer-to-peer structure has given rise to concerns about exploitation, pollution, discrimination, and you know, the list goes on. But you've presented a number of ways that the sharing economy can fulfill its original potential. And I'm deeply interested in, in your response to this question because I am certain we have a couple of investments in the sharing economy, but I'm sure we'll have more. 
what lessons can we learn from your research about the gig economy when it comes to developing more economically and environmentally efficient systems? And you can feel free to touch on any element of this that you want. Well, let's start with the environmental. I think that's in some ways a little more straightforward and connects obviously with what we've been talking about. So if we think back to the claims that the, the sharing platforms were going to reduce carbon footprints, there was just always a prima facie implausibility to those because the two sectors where you had the rapid growth and the big platforms, very successful in terms of growth platforms coming up are transportation and travel. So ride hail, Uber and Lyft, travel, Airbnb. And so the peer-to-peer structure was, of course, very key to the novelty of these platforms. But the other thing was they offered much cheaper alternatives than what was in the market. And you have to know that if you offer cheaper lodging or cheaper transport, people are going to buy more of it. And so it expanded the markets tremendously. And you know we've seen now, we have less documentation on Airbnb, which is something I'm studying, but we have a lot now on ride hail. You know, which did the opposite of what its proponents claimed. It's led to more cars being registered, not fewer people having cars. It's led to more vehicle miles traveled, more congestion, more emissions, more traffic fatalities, etc. So right there, we have to ask a question. Like if we want a platform to have a beneficial impact on footprints, we've got to, number one, look at what it's going to do to the market, what, you know, what's the technology involved. If they'd started out with electric cars, it might have made a massive difference. You know, it could have maybe spread a revolution in EVs because it would have expanded the market for EVs. It would have changed Absolutely. the future and so Absolutely. forth. So there's an example of how a company could, you know, if they put the, the ecological concerns at the forefront, they could actually you know, maybe have made a difference. Airbnb, the error was in the thinking about first round effects versus others. So they thought about the first round effects. uh, Oh, fewer hotels being produced because you can use the idle, you know, the spare capacity of people's homes. But they didn't think about the fact that people would travel more if they could get cheap lodging. So you got to think through all the rounds of impact. And you've got to account for those. And in the absence of a governmental policy to do that at a company level, you can basically say, we're going to put ecological sustainability at the core. I mean, we have a few companies that do that, not many. I mean, Patagonia being you know one of the most famous for really focusing very heavily on their uh, ecological impacts. But you've got to measure it you've got to account for it and you've got to commit to a reduction. It's not that easy. I mean, it's hard for an individual company to do it when you have a larger context in which you have highly subsidized fossil fuels. Um, I mean, I would would also say in addition, you know, absent guardrails that come from somewhere, these network businesses, spiral out of control very quickly, and then it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. My hope is, as environmental concerns rise dramatically, that there will, in fact, be a new generation of disruptors 
that in these very spaces that are maybe built a different way. And you're seeing a little bit of that in my world, but yeah. not enough. So, I mean, just to a couple more thoughts on this. I'm friends with the woman who co-founded Zipcar, and she's an ardent climate activist. I mean, and cared so much about it and believed that Zipcar was going to reduce footprints. But mm-hmm. I mean, this is the other thing about the gig economy companies, which is in part their stories of unintended consequences. Yep. But it's it's partly because people didn't want to want to look hard enough at what was going no, on. They didn't, what no, Zipcar did, Zipcar gave car access to lots of people who didn't have it before. And right. then I had another friend who did work with the company and you know helped convince them to stop saying that they were reducing footprints because right. it was pretty clear they weren't, which they did. Oh, I had another great, I mean, probably a lot of people in startups and entrepreneurs and so forth are watching your your podcast. So I'll give a story of another guy. I started studying the gig economy just basically when it started and there weren't many academics around. And I had quite a few found, you know, startup entrepreneurs contact me for, for advice and, you know, to talk about it. And this is a guy who, again, ardent environmentalist, wanted to start an app that when you put a product into, you know, you go to a store, it reads the SKU on the product or whatever, it reads something on the product and it tells you what the resale value is going to be. And the reason it, so he was thinking about things like camping gear, durables, that the aim was to induce consumers to buy higher quality, more durable products. Right with lower ecological impact, so they would last a long time. Right. Okay, sounds really great, right? Okay. But what I tried to explain to him was, if you do that, people are going to buy more, and then they're going to resell them and buy yet another one, because when you create that secondary market, it's actually going to expand the demand. Right. And is that that pretty much what happened? You're going to, well, you're going to get the opposite of what happened. Okay very resistant. We go through a couple of conversations. I keep trying to convince him. Finally, I say, look, get yourself a, an economist, a, you know, hire a consultant to, to do a model for you to show you what is going to happen as a result of your app. Would have been a very simple thing to do. It would have shown what I'm talking about. No, he, he just, he wouldn't do it. He stopped talking to me because he didn't want to hear it. No. He really wanted, he wanted to be able to do this thing, which he thought is going to be successful and which he, you know, emotionally, he wanted it to be good for the environment, but it wasn't going to be, and he didn't want to give it up. And I just think there's a way in which with the whole sharing economy, there were just a lot of people really wanted to believe that it was going to be good for the environment because they liked it for other reasons, many of which are very legitimate. So we've got to face the hard facts. We do have to face the hard facts. And that brings me to our final question, which is a little bit more on on the activist side of your life. So you've been heavily involved in community-based environmental efforts, which I did not know until I researched your background, because I focused more on your research. You co-founded and served on the board for the Center of the, for the New American Dream for 15 years. You're currently on the board of the Better Future Project. And in a couple of your works, you discuss the value of 
low consumption behavior patterns in small, innovative grassroots groups. This is hugely interesting. So tell us a little bit about grassroots momentum when it comes to changing climate policy and behavior. And this is very topical for me because I'm in the middle of a conversation with someone else about it, about essentially this topic. To understand our consumer behavior, the most important thing to get is that we're super social. And what we experience our consumer our desires, what feels adequate, what's satisfying, what's enough, what isn't enough, et cetera, always in the context of others. And this goes totally counter to what you learned if you took an economics course in this country in the last 50 years, I would say. Because, you know, this used to be a big part of how economists understood consumption, but they moved away from this to this, you know, this very individualist model, which is really based on the idea that what we consume gives us value or welfare because of its functional qualities. So the reason I want this car is because it's a better car rather than what its social meaning is. So in a world where it's the social meanings of consumption, which are really key, and I think that's the world we live in, not to say, yes, the functional characteristics do matter. And people differ across this, but the social meanings are really, really key. Then what the consumption patterns of the people around us are so key in determining how we experience our consumer levels. So whether something is enough or not really depends on who's around us. And that's what I showed in my work would you know things like consumer items that we take out in public we pay a lot more in a status premium for them so i did a study of women's makeup and the lipsticks are the ones all the lipsticks are chemically identical people right. are paying multiples of 5 to 15 for a lipstick based on the the name brand and the case which is what right. people could see cuz women take their lipsticks out in public for their facial cleansers, no, they demand quality if they're going to pay more. I showed that the amount that people save depends a lot on who their friends are and how much more or less money they have than they do. So people spend up to their reference groups and they go into debt to keep up with people if their crowd is just wealthier than they are. So this is where the small group context of people transforming lifestyles in more in community is important because people will, people can downshift together. If that's what we're talking about, people can go to lower carbon lifestyles together. So if everybody else is going to a smaller electric car, or they start actually working a little bit less, earning less, having more free time, doing some gardening, if if all the, the people around you are doing it, it just makes it a lot more easy, pleasurable, and psychologically viable to do it. And so I think that's the question you were asking. It's about how we transform lifestyles and the idea that it has to happen in community. And it's why you see certain areas, the Pacific Northwest or some of the college towns or areas where you get a lot of a phenomenon I've written a lot about, which is downshifting, where people right. make trade-offs to have more time and less money. And that's really key. I mean, the whole premise of the Center for a New American Dream was that the lifestyle of long hours of work, 
commutes, big houses, affluent consumer lifestyles, et cetera, isn't meeting people's needs, that we could sort of get off that treadmill if we all sort of downshift together we're not going to get left behind, which is a lot of what people worry about in this country. And we're going to have more time for our kids. And, you know, our tagline was more of what really matters. And there's just so much research saying that what really matters is people's social connections, their connections with family, meaningful work, and their physical health, which is connected to work patterns and social connections. So it's sort of, let's attend to the things which actually give us well-being. And we know that, you know, once we're, we've got a decent standard of living, just piling up the toys or, you know, escalating our living standards actually doesn't yield much in the way of well-being compared to things like having more time, having more security, having stronger social relations and meaning. Meaning is so, so important to people to not do something you don't believe in and care about just to get money. I guess, I mean, as you can imagine, I agree with you, but in my case, these realizations came after many decades of behaving otherwise, let's put it that way. And it really came about as a result of a lot of reading and thinking and research, not really in a social setting. As you point out, it is much easier to do this and much more likely to occur when you have that small group social setting. So I'll I'll just toss in one little follow-up question for people who watch this who who say, my God, Julia's making a ton of sense here. How does one find one's way to a small group? Because it implies, you know, unless you want to get evangelical with your own current groups, it implies that you need to go find a like-minded group. Now, how does one even think about that? Well, I think the good news is that there are more and more people all over the country, and particularly the kinds of people who are watching this podcast within your community. Right. There are more and more people who are thinking about these things and really thinking in these ways. And so you can start with something like a book club or just something small and begin to have the conversation. One of the things that I think is that just asking the questions kind of leads us to the answer. It's like, these are conversations we're not supposed to be having or our culture hasn't been having until, except on the margins until recently. I think that there's a lot more openness to having the conversations now. And if we really just start with conversations, like what's really important to you? How is your life working? Where isn't it working? Like, what do you value? I think you can get pretty quickly to places where you've got a lot of people in the room agreeing, even if they're living their lives in very different ways, like even if they're most hard charging, money oriented, consumerist, there's a part of many of those people, not all, but many of those people who have an unease with it. I can tell you one thing that I've found among people I know, because I I know a lot of people in your world or worlds like it, you know, over the years and people I went to college with or whatever, many took that path. Many of them have a dream that they think is like their true self. This is who I really am. I'm not this person who's just 
cutthroat financier or just making all this money or whatever. And they sort of live with that contradiction between like, oh, when I get this, then I'm going to retire and do this. Or when this happens, then I'm going to be, I'm going to fulfill that dream. They hold on to some, that vision, which is typically not just, I want to be the richest person that I can, or I just want to have the biggest house or, you know, few people for whom that is their dream. (laughs) God bless them. Many of us, we live with that contradiction that contradiction between that sort of the dream that we had when we were young, maybe, or an ideal self or something and kind of how our everyday life is going. And also allowing people to kind of realize that, talk about that and kind of explore that. I mean, what I found with the downshifters was that for a lot of them, they left when following the money became untenable. Right. Because it was burning them out. They were losing their health. Maybe something was happening to their children because they were working too long or, you know, those kinds of things. So it's often a, a life crisis that will prompt this kind of change. I mean, hopefully people don't have to go through that. But there are people, you know, maybe like yourself who, for whom it's it's come about in a more organic way, just through reading, learning, thinking, just then you start down a path. And one thing about, I mean, for me these ideas aren't different. I would say my path has been more about, you know, reducing footprint over the years, like different things, but you know, you do one thing and it's actually pretty good. Then you try the next and the next. And and there, there is that kind of momentum that can gather when you start on a path towards living a life that's different from the normative high consumer lifestyle of, of a lot of Americans. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say, you know, I, obviously agree with everything you just said. I'm just making an observation about my peer group, so to speak. And, you know, my peer group is actually a very wide range of people in it, including many, if not most, who would not be considered affluent. But if I look at the affluent side of the spectrum, you're absolutely right. They have a dream of over here, and then there's the reality. And often the reality is, Every time you get to one economic outcome, there's always another guy with another zero to his name at the end of the number. And you really end up just never getting off the treadmill. And I I say this often to people in my circle. I seem to know an unusual number of rich, unhappy people. And that's sad. Sad in many ways. But we're not going to end on a sad note. We're going to end on a very positive note, which is that we should all be thinking about what those small groups are to get us to rethink footprints and downshifting. And in, on a very positive note, I have slowly been been finding my own such groups in that fashion. So, Juliet, we could go on for like days here, and we, we cannot because you have other stuff to do. Thank you very much for your time. And this is, unfortunately for you, not going to be the last time we do this because we're now going to have to do five more like these to just dig into every topic. But thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please email us at climate at amasia.vc with any suggestions or ideas and visit inourhands.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information.